You're listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast, conversations between girlfriends who have the knowledge and information to educate and empower you before, during, and after a divorce. We are here to remind you that you're grown and you got this. Welcome to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook, and today we are talking all about mental health, self-care, and the impact of toxic relationships with Dr. Adia Gooden. Talking about mental health is not something that we as Black women often do, but today we are getting into it because we need to. Dr. Gooden is a licensed clinical psychologist with an active clinical practice where she treats individuals and couples, and she serves as the Director of Community Programs and Outcome Measurement at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Dr. Gooden is committed to empowering all people to thrive and share their full selves and gifts with the world. She inspires people to move beyond managing mental health, to embodying mental wellness and engaging boldly with the world. We are in for a real treat today. Welcome Dr. Gooden and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this is one of those topics, right? So mental health and divorce are the two areas that when you say those words, it's like, you know, people scurry, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm so, I'm just thrilled that we're going to be able to kind of, you know, hopefully blow the lid off of that taboo component because it's so, so important. But as Black women, why do you think, that we are generally resistant to talking about mental health or mental health challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think Black women are socialized to be strong, right? We're socialized to have everything together or to keep moving through challenges and be sort of the uh, rock for our families or our communities and, and just be able to sort of take challenges, roll with them, keep moving forward. And that is um, a challenge that keeps Black women from feeling like it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say we're having a hard time. It's okay to say we're struggling and, and ask for help. And I certainly think that's changing, thankfully. Thankfully. Um, yes. And it still can be hard for people to feel like, well, you know, my mom or my grandmother or, you know, my ancestors went through much worse. What's wrong with me, right? Why am I struggling? Why am I having a hard time? And I generally think in the Black community, you know, struggling with mental health is sort of associated with severe mental illness, right? And so there's this assumption that if you go to see a therapist or you need some extra support, that maybe you're crazy, right? That can be a, a common thought, Also, because many Black people are Christian, many Black women are Christian, there's a sense of, well, if I really trusted God, then I wouldn't need a therapist, Mm -hmm. right? Or I should be able to just pray it away, right? And so there's all these sort of things that happen culturally that can prevent us from addressing mental health. I also think it's really important to note that there's a history of mental health professionals, psychologists in particular, of mistreating Black people and Black women, right? And so there can be an apprehension about going into a therapy room. Right now we're doing most 
teletherapy, but right. going into a room with someone you don't know and sharing sort of vulnerable things and worrying, can I trust you? Will you stereotype me? Will you judge me? Um, and so I think all of those things sort of combine um, to kind of keep Black women from seeking care that could be really helpful for them. You know, it's so true. I think in the similarities, you know, as you're speaking, are so um, startling between what I experience when, um, you know, I have a Black woman coming into my office uh, for the first time um, because of those same things where, you know, they have been dealing with an issue for a very long time, Mm-hmm. And my question is, why didn't you see, why didn't you come see me a long time ago? And a lot of it stems from, you know, shame, stigma, but, you know, to your point of spirituality in our community, that's a big component of who we are. And so I think that kind of keeps us in this place of, right, prayer will see me through um, and, you know, God will have the answer. Well, make no mistake, right? I, I am God-fearing, and I, and I truly believe that, uh, you know, God and faith are, are important in our lives. But I also recognize and believe that God put certain experts in place and allowed us to do the mission and the work that we do to help others, right? So um, it's really important that we, um, in some ways— follow in that path of getting the help that we need. Because I I do think that left unchecked, right, um, issues related to mental health prevent us from leading our most fulfilling lives. And so I I have to imagine that there are many women um, who are struggling to get kind of past toxic relationships or get past feelings of, you know, unworthiness and they really actually need the assistance to give them the tools to help them through. Is that, would you say that's, that's kind of, you know, the things that you see or, or, you know, you would agree with? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, you said so much there that was really great. Um, You know, I do like to say that God created therapists, right? So (laughs) I think it's important. You know, I love the sort of story or metaphor of the person who's drowning and praying, God, help me, God, help me. And a boat comes by and they say, no, God's going to save me. And helicopter comes, no, God's going to save me. Somebody else comes, no, God's going to save me. They die, they drown because they didn't get the, they didn't accept the help, go to heaven and say, God, you know, where were you? And God says, I I sent a boat, (laughs) I sent a helicopter, I sent another ship, you know, you didn't take the help, right? And so we have to remember that, that help comes in many forms, right? And accepting help does not mean that you're not trusting in God or trusting in a higher power. Um, And yes, I, you know, I think that mental health issues can hold us back, right? When we don't feel worthy, when we're riddled with anxiety, when we're depressed, and um, I'll say parenthetically, for Black women, depression often looks a little bit different than for other populations because depression doesn't often look like I'm not getting out of bed and I'm not eating, I'm not doing anything, right? Because Black women, as we said in the beginning, have this drive and this push that they're going to keep going to work and they're going to keep taking care of their kids and they're going to keep taking care of their family despite the depression because that is what it feels is required of us, right? right? Right. But you may still feel low energy and sad and 
badly about yourself and a sense of low self-worth. And all of these things hold us back, right? They keep us from sharing our full gifts and talents with the world, from, you know, advocating for ourselves, setting boundaries, right? They're more likely to keep us in toxic relationships. When we don't feel good about ourselves, we are much more likely to settle for poor treatment in relationships. I'm imagining that you see this in your practice, oh, right? for sure. I- that that I think is is a huge component, but I think it's so um, important to to really hone in on, on your comment here about you know depression looks different um, you know in Black women because I think we also often think when we hear someone being depressed right we're thinking of a person who's laying in bed can't get out of bed um, you know dark room crying and I think that may be. Um, one component, but I, I will say that just having friends who I know struggle with depression, one of the comments and one of the, the, the um, things that I always take to heart is a girlfriend who said, I don't have the luxury mm. to kind of lay down and cry and, you know, um, have my depression look like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so that to me was uh, was really kind of a, a shocking. So that's that's really key that you said, you know, that it can look and take different forms, especially when we are so often taking care of everybody else um, because, you know, we have to or that's that's kind of the role that that we fill. So, you know, with that in mind, I want to talk about and really kind of understand the difference between self-esteem and self-worth because a lot of times when someone by the time someone gets to my office there really is a lack of self-worth even though they may be presenting as someone who has high Mm self-esteem and it's so interesting because I didn't realize the nuance and the difference until well into my practice and the impact that it has on like negotiating a settlement or Mm. presenting someone um, in court. And there really is a difference. So can you kind of, you know, expound upon what, what the differences really are? Yeah, this is such a good question and something that I talked about in my um, TEDx talk on cultivating unconditional self-worth. But, you know, I think about self-esteem as our sense that we have an ability to accomplish something, that we're good at something, that we can take on a task at work or in an academic program at school. And we feel like, okay, I'm confident. I know how to do my job. I know how to do uh, this academic work. I, I can accomplish, right? And so there are times when we have high self-esteem because, you know, maybe we've been at a job for a few years and we know our stuff and we know what we're doing and we, you know, can move forward and be successful. And then there may be other times when our self-esteem is lower. We're starting a new job or we're switching careers or doing something new. And we're like, I don't know how to do this, right? I don't, I don't know how to do it. And I don't feel super confident in my ability to sort of figure it out. Right. So that self-esteem is often conditional, right? It's conditioned based on the circumstances or environment, uh, what we're doing and what we believe we can do. Okay. And I like to think of self-worth as uh, being just based on the fact that we are human. Oh, okay. So, you know, I think an easy way for people to sort of connect with this is imagine a baby, 
<laughs> an adorable two month old, let's say, or if you have a two month old and they're crying through the night and that's hard, right? <laughs> maybe like maybe six new months newborn. old, right? Or, or new newborn, right? But an adorable, adorable yeah. baby, right? And think about it. Has that baby done anything? Oh. Have they accomplished anything? Okay. Are they good at anything besides sleeping? sleeping. Maybe, sleeping. maybe not even great at sleeping, right? Just uh, eating, just be- right? Yeah. Some babies even struggle with eating and breastfeeding, right? Or yeah. uh, pooping, right? Like those are the right. things, right? Right. And yet, I imagine you would look at that baby and say, oh my goodness, it, is, it deserves all of the love and care in the world. Yes. Right? Yes. right. And and the reality is, is that that is still true for us as adults. Okay. Right? That That our worthiness, because we are human, despite what we may have done or not done, yeah. is there. It's based on our humanity, and we are worthy of love and care okay. and support and encouragement. And so I can see how this could translate in, in what you're saying you see with your clients, because somebody may be a, a doctor, let's say, they're a right. physician, and they're confident at their job, and yet feeling worthy of a reasonable settlement or feeling worthy of negotiating something that's fair for them, given the circumstances of their divorce, let's say, uh, may be more challenging for them to own. Well, and it's, you know, I find it really in very successful women, which which I think Mm. is counterintuitive, right? You would think that women who are very successful in their careers would have a very strong sense of Mm self-worth. But what is interesting is, yes, their careers and their own feelings of that kind of condition of I'm great at my job or, you know, I've done a great thing in this way doesn't always translate because the marriage has failed. And so now all of a sudden there's a feeling of, Am I right worthy of love? Am I worthy of happiness or protection? Um, and you know, it's it's a really hard thing to kind of negotiate when someone really is struggling with this idea of not feeling that you know they are worthy of um, of the things that kind of lay before them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and certainly in a lot of cases, that does come from being in a relationship that has been toxic for years. And so, you know, for example, if you have been married to someone who is a narcissist, someone who um, has really day in and day out is about gaslighting and, you know, it's constant where you are second guessing yourself, asking yourself questions, discounting your own, um, you know, thought process, no matter whether or not, you know, you're right. I think over time, you know, that chips away, it chips away, it chips away. And then it, um, it then becomes where there's this true belief and feeling of, of unworthiness, um, despite other successes. Yeah. I, you know, I think that makes so much sense. And I'm all also thinking about the fact that for many women, marriage is seen as sort of this ultimate goal and marker of your worthiness as a woman. Yes. Right? It's it's this condition that can you get married? 
And what does that say about you as a woman, right? And so that if that's the goal and then it doesn't work, yeah. and often the narrative is that the wife should stay, the woman should tolerate it. It's the yeah. woman's responsibility to make the marriage work. And so with these sort of common narratives, it's really easy to internalize. First of all, I, I reached this pinnacle and I messed it up. I didn't make it work. So that must mean I'm unworthy of love and to sort of take responsibility for a toxic relationship when both partners probably contributed to that dynamic. For sure. For sure. I, I mean, it is between the idea of marriage and then by extension of that uh, motherhood, I think, you know, mm. we still have this antiquated notion of what that looks like and um, the connectedness to worthiness, right? So um, coming to the realization that your marriage did not work, right? If it's tied to I'm worthy and, and feelings of, um, you know, only those who are worthy of love are then mm. married. And, and, and that that whole kind of um, connectivity, when that is no longer the case, because this particular relationship didn't work, it does then um, impact other things. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, that is why in the divorce process, <clears throat> one of the things at the very beginning, I speak to, you know, potential clients and then, you know, uh, eventually the client about having the right support systems in place because I recognize that I am in the driver's seat as it relates to the law. Mm -hmm. But in this particular area of law, there are so many other facets and components that, you know, really, I need somebody else who's in the driver's seat, right, dealing with the mental health side, the emotional side, the, you know, physical side, because as we know, all of these things kind of are interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, I think the practice of family law and divorce is uniquely kind of tied to, to, um, one's, one's feeling of them, of themselves. Um, and that's also why it is so difficult at times for me to say to, um, a client, have you met with a therapist? Mm -hmm. Because as we talked about at the very beginning, that can come off in, in, in the wrong way, right? Because mm -hmm. there's can be feelings of like, wait, do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I, you know, why do I need help? And so with that in mind, you know, how do you think, you know, approaching, so if you've got a girlfriend who you know, right, um, could use some help, um, mm -hmm. how do you approach that conversation of saying, you know, maybe you ought to do a check-in, right? Um, so that it comes from truly a place of love and sincerity, but also guiding them to the, you need to meet with a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question because it can be so sensitive. And, you know, I think that starting with acknowledging what you've been witnessing with your friend, right? So it seems like things have been really hard for you recently. Like you've been feeling down or stressed or struggling 
And it's hard to see you go through this. And I, and I really want to be able to support you in sort of moving out of this time because I know that it's been so hard. If you have experience with therapy yourself, that's a great time to bring it up, right? So saying, I went to therapy before and it was so helpful for me. And I wonder if that might be helpful for you as well. This was my experience. This is how it helped. If you haven't been to therapy before, you can say, I, I've heard that therapy can be a great space to have a professional support you. Um, you know, I'm thinking about part of what we were talking about earlier related to people resisting therapy is, you know, people often think that going to therapy means you're weak, but really the work in therapy is challenging, right? Yeah. It actually takes more courage to face our challenges and face our issues and work through them constructively than it does to oppress, suppress, avoid, have unhealthy coping, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think sort of saying it would be courageous right to go and get this support to move through this challenging time and to also say I'm not suggesting this so that you don't come to me I hope that you will still come to me and I know that I can offer you empathy and support and encouragement and I I'm not a professional who can help you with skills and strategies to manage depression or anxiety um so I, you know, I think those would be the key things, right? So recognize, share your own experience with therapy, frame it as I want you to have the best help possible. I'm here too. And it seems like having a professional to support you could be really useful. You know, I think that's fantastic. I, I, I do because I, we all mean well, right? And, and, you know, we all have girlfriends and cousins and mothers and um, you know, pastors and preachers and everybody means well, and everybody's going to give you their kind of perspective and response. And, you know, I'm in a group that crew as the peanut gallery mm-hmm. and sometimes meaning well is not what we need. Mm-hmm. We need someone to actually guide us and to help us and, um, give us the tools, uh, to move in the right direction um, again, I, I, I feel like we are saying really the same kind of things, um, but in just two different, um, in two different areas, because it's that same thing where, you know, I have people who come in after years of struggling and suffering and, and figuring things out. And the first thing they'll say is, oh, well, my cousin said, or my you know girlfriend said, and You know, and I'm like, well, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. However, that's not right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, and I, and I try in so many words to be very sensitive, like, yeah, yeah, no. Um, But it's important to, to get the right help um, to, to really help you move through, really help you move through some of these things. So, you know, self-care is, I don't want to say it's all the rage, but Mm -hmm. I feel like we're all talking about self-care these days, right? And um, self-care can mean a a lot of different things and can look like a lot of different things. But one of the things that I think um, self-care that we don't think about is kind of this daily mental health almost check-in of mm. how are we feeling about ourselves this morning? What's got us anxious in and uh, or overwhelmed? And 
are there things that just kind of easy steps um, that you think we can do when we just kind of need a quick kind of self check um, mm-hmm. for ourselves? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's really helpful to have morning routines. Okay. I think that when we wake up and the first thing we do is open our phone, look on social media, check our email, there is no break, right? We are diving right into the mix of it, right? And sometimes you might open social media and see puppies or cute babies and it's uplifting and it's positive, but sometimes you might see something that's upsetting or frustrating. And sometimes your email may be also upsetting and frustrating. And in that there's no space for checking in with yourself and just taking note how am I feeling today? For me, that looks like, you know, I wake up, I work out, I meditate, right? And the meditation and the working out really allow me to check in with myself physically and mentally and emotionally. Where's my energy at today? How's my body feeling today? What's my mood like today? And it just allows me to be aware of it. And there's not always, uh, oh, I'm feeling down. So there's this quick solution, but I, I can understand and be patient and compassionate with myself for wherever I am during that day. And then understand that that may affect the rest of the day and I may want to take things slower or I may sort of know I'm probably going to get a lot of work done or today's a good day for this or that. So I think that those things are helpful and I think they take some intention because the world pulls at our attention, right? That's, you know, when people talk about social media, right? The, the uh, commodity is your attention, Right. How long will you stay on Instagram or Facebook? How many things will you click? How many ads will you see? That's the commodity. Commodity is your attention. And the thing we need to be careful about is not giving that away unintentionally. And so I think starting in the morning, we can direct our attention. Even if you just have five or 10 minutes in the morning to meditate or to pray or to listen to music or to read scripture or something inspirational, you are directing your attention to what you want to focus on and not letting it just be reactive to whatever is coming in your inbox or scrolling across your screen. I like that. I like that. I I like the idea of, you know, you're setting your intention, but more importantly, that you aren't starting from a place of being reactive. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think the correlation here is so true in that, you know, a lot of times in a divorce scenario, we are coming from a place of being reactive and, and that's just not a space by which you want to, to, to be because it is, um, exhausting and, mm-hmm. you know, overwhelming and, and anxiety producing. So being able to kind of reframe and control that and starting from from a place of setting your intention um, certainly is really helpful in the so continuing with this idea of kind of protecting you know your uh, yourself in in a mental health space I think the idea of setting boundaries for oneself, is a, you know, a huge component of self-care. And, and I say that because a lot of times in a post-divorce scenario, especially when, when families have children or parties have children, there is this ongoing connection with your mm. ex. And it's 
a very toxic place to be because you've come out of a marriage that didn't work for whatever reason, but now it's kind of going on and on and on. So the idea of setting boundaries is, I think, um, important for self-care and figuring out how to do that um, is something that I think uh, is important to understand. Yeah, I completely agree with you that boundaries are essential for self-care. I'm not sure you can fully take care of yourself if you can't set boundaries. No matter what you're doing for self-care, whether that's exercise or getting enough sleep or, you know, eating well or spending time with friends or whatever it is, you have to say no to something and yes to something else. You have to say, this is my time and this is how I'm going to use it. And then I think when you're tying in what happens with divorce, right? Setting boundaries around what are we going to communicate about and what are we not communicating about? And also thinking about protecting children. What do we talk to the kids about? Right. Right. And what do we not talk to kids about? Right. We've all heard the stories of kids hearing from this parent that the other parent is so awful and I, well, they didn't show up or they, you know, that is also unhealthy uh, and sort of, breaking or moving beyond the boundaries of what children should be involved in and and know about. So I think setting boundaries is essential. I think a big piece, and this is particularly for women, being willing to feel uncomfortable when you set the boundary. Often we do not set the boundary because we are worried that someone will judge us or criticize us or call us selfish or we'll be seen as a bad mom or a bad wife or about whoever, right? And so we need to identify what do we need? What is it that we want to say is our boundary? Yes. Breathe and, <laughs> and do it even though it makes you uncomfortable. Because often when we set boundaries, especially when it's a new boundary, okay, the other person throws a tantrum, right? So I like yes. to say yes. when you're in the store with a two-year-old or a three-year-old, right? A boundary is no, we're not going to touch the candy or no, we're not going to have the candy. Right. And when you say that two or three-year-old, they may be likely to have a tantrum, especially if before when you went to the store, every time they got candy and you've decided it's too much sugar. We don't want to do this. It's not good for the kid. So now you're setting a boundary. They're going to have a tantrum. Yes. So the challenge is you don't bend on your boundary just because somebody else is having a tantrum. Ah, I like it. I like you, you know, okay, this is part of the process. I used to do this for them. I used to give this away and now I'm saying I will not. And so they're going to be upset. Right. And I have to stand firm despite the tantrum, because as you know, with the kid, the toddler, if you give into the tantrum, what the kid learns, you're not getting it back ever. And when I have a tantrum, I will get what I want. That's right. That's right. So that's the challenge with boundaries is being willing to be uncomfortable, being clear and doing it anyway and standing firm, right? Even when you feel uncomfortable. You know, I love that because it's consistency is key. So you set the boundary and then you be consistent. And, 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 you know, I, I really, it's interesting because for those women who are transitioning from a marriage where they were doing certain things all the time, right? And maybe it's, I was always responsible for the kids, or I was always the one who apologized, or I was always the one who, you know, um, 
held back on my career for my spouse. Then they get divorced. And within a week, people fall back into old habits. And so I can't tell you the number of times where I'll get an email from a former client who says, oh, I'm just so annoyed. You know, we've got this parenting schedule and my ex continues to, you know, make me feel bad about like, you know, having the kids or, or not taking the kids when it's not my parenting time. And my response is, that's not your job anymore. So say no and keep it moving. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point, be uncomfortable with your spouse being mad or, you know, un- whatever is going to happen. But you've got you've to draw that line in the sand and be consistent because otherwise it does impact you. And, and, and I think that people kind of get caught in that space. So I like the idea of be okay with being uncomfortable because otherwise, if you don't, you fall back in that really bad cycle. Right. And, and, that's, and, and, and that prevents you, I think, from, from actual real growth. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's key. I think that's so key. So, you know, we, we've talked about some really, I, I'm so thrilled about this conversation and, and some really great things. But one of the things that I, I imagine is a challenge is finding the right therapist and finding a fit. And so how do you go about identifying someone who is the right fit? Is it an instant connection or is it something where it's, let me try this out for a couple of sessions and see if it works? Or maybe it's a combination of both, but how are we finding the right person for us? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. You know, sometimes we talk about finding a therapist like dating, right? And so, you know, testing it out, right? Going to a session, you can ask if the therapist provides free consultation on the phone, get a sense for, do do you like this, the energy of this therapist, the vibe of this therapist? Does, do you feel comfortable? Feeling safe is the number one thing, right? You should never feel unsafe with your therapist. And if you do, that's a red flag, right? Okay. You will probably feel uncomfortable at certain times during the therapy and that's normal, but that's different than feeling unsafe. So wanting to make sure you feel safe, make sure you feel heard, right? That if you're sharing something, the therapist isn't just making assumptions about you or about your experience, but is really curious about you and your experience. Okay. And I would also encourage people to ask the therapist how they approach therapy. Okay. Um, There are a number of different ways to approach therapy. Sometimes therapists are more active and directive and focus on sharing more strategies and coping skills and things like that. Other therapists may be more focused on exploring your family history and experience with childhood and how that has Um, affected where you are in your life today. Some therapists are more just sort of open-ended and just provide a space for you to share and they offer empathy without a lot of uh, digging into the past or giving you strategies. And some therapists sort of combine all of those approaches. They have a more integrated approach. And so having a sense of, do you want somebody who's like, 
let's tackle this anxiety and depression and let's give you strategies and, you know, move you through it. Do you want someone who's going to help you connect the dots of your history and, and why you're experiencing the struggles you're experiencing or why you're having these patterns in relationships? So you want to ask the therapist, how do you approach this work, right? What do you tend to focus in on? Um, That can be another uh, important question. Then there's some simple things like, do you take my insurance or how much (laughs) is your fee or when's your availability uh, to try to make sure it's affordable and and reasonable uh, for you to see the person on a regular basis? No, no, I I get that. You know, how far are you from my home or my office? Now, Mm -hmm. you know, there's everything now at least right now it's, you know, kind of teletherapy or or Zoom. So that may not be on on the list, but, you know, pre-COVID, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's, you know, if I'm living in the city, I don't know that I'm schlepping all the way out to, uh, you know, the the North Shore uh, to meet with somebody or the fight outside. So, yeah. And I'll just, I'll also add that, you know, for women of color, for Black women in particular, you know, there's demand for Black female therapists, which is great. And there's the therapy for black girls directory, which can be super useful. And I think this is true for me. This is true for a lot of my colleagues. We're many black female therapists are full and there's not enough black female therapists to support all of the black women who are now wanting therapy. Um, I am in the process of co-authoring a book uh, on psychotherapy with Black women, which is really exciting. Um, And part of the point of the book is for Black women and Black therapists and also for therapists who are not Black women to understand how to effectively provide care to Black women. And so if you're looking for a therapist and and you can't find a Black female therapist or that's not a priority for you, uh, I think it can be helpful to ask about the therapist's approach to diversity, uh, about their experience working with diverse clients and integration of identity into the therapy. Um, I think most therapists would say that they're culturally competent and you want to kind of get a sense of how do they think about this? How do they approach this type of work to make sure that those aspects of your identity can also be included? And same if you're LGBTQ or there's another identity that's really salient for you, you can ask the therapist about their experience working with other people with similar identities. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, this is fantastic. This information has been so helpful and, and, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, you know, sharing with us today. So I know you're booked because, you know, all the good ones are, no, but um, tell us, um, you know, where we can find you and, and uh, to get some more gems uh, for those of us who can't get in with an excellent therapist right now. <laughs> sure. So um, I have a website, uh, www dradiagooden.com. So that's D-R-A-D-I-A-G-O-O-D-E-N.com. I'm on Instagram uh, at Dr. Adia Gooden. Also on Facebook, same thing, Dr. Adia Gooden. Um, You can also sign up for my newsletter where I share things and receive a free ebook from me on cultivating unconditional self-worth. If you go to my website, Uh, so I hope you reach out and I hope you find me. I try to share a lot on social media that I think will help people feel less alone. You need to follow her because it's excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's where people can find me. 
Well, good. Well, thank you so much. I, I, again, I appreciate this conversation with you because I know it's so helpful for so many women. Um, and, you know, not all of us have a girlfriend who is a therapist or a divorce attorney. And so it's so important to be able to share uh, this information, um, you know, with, uh, with others. Thank you for listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so that you can catch new episodes. Remember, though you may be going through a difficult time, you're grown and you got this. Until next time.